This is the Shift Podcast. Today on the Shift Daily Podcast, what is a protest? We've seen them in Ottawa. How do they actually work? A criminologist tells us about the psychology of what goes into mass protests. His name's Dan Horner. He's an amazing guest. How do they turn violent? Why do they turn violent? Who jumps on board that doesn't belong there? But can they be effective? And why? Why do we protest? Understanding the nuts and bolts around a protest so we can maybe understand what we're seeing in Canada. Andy Andy Barrar, the DIY experts, tells us how a fellow shift head helped him create his very own logo inside a coffee table with a marble and sand. It's very feng shui and cool. Also, electric airplanes for cargo starting to take flight. Plus, are you okay with shoveling snow? And what about vanity license plates? One of the best ones that you've ever seen. This is the Shift Podcast. I'm Shane Hewitt. Brendan Kelly is here. Are you okay with... vanity plates yeah if they're intelligent if they're funny if i'm driving down the road and i see a funny you know plate, Mm -hmm. mildly intelligent i'll giggle and then you Mm -hmm. know probably forget about it a few minutes Mm -hmm. later but if it provides me with that momentary entertainment that's fun but like i see a lot of stupid ones yeah there are some ones that that are really dumb and and i get i get it that you really like tennis or something you know um but much like the proctologist on Seinfeld, um, you know, the license plate of Ass Man uh, was pretty funny. Um, I had one, my, my old DJ name was very first one. My parents bought it me for, for me for um, forever ago. Like I was probably 18. Um, and But aside from that, I mean, they are fun. I did see one that um, <laughs> the, the vanity plate was license plate. Oh. Well, that's that's what the plate said. That's good. License oh, yeah, plate. That's good. I like that. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that was particularly creative. And I saw another one. It was on a Jeep. It was on the back of the Jeep. And it said spare tire. Because the, the license <laughs> yeah. plate is on the, on spare, the spare tire. tire yeah. <laughs> that's good, too. I like that. See, See those are creative. Yeah. Meaningful memes. Very dumb. Bumper stumpers the game show. It doesn't matter. A vanity plate can have anything that you want. Well, almost anything. Because last year, Newfoundland's highest court had to hear this argument. It's a battle that's been fought for over four years. Can a last name on a license plate be considered offensive? Well, in part, it depends on what that last name is. But what if the last name has appeared on the license plate for nearly 30 years before being revoked? That's the case with Lorne Grabber, who had his name on a personalized license plate in Nova Scotia for 27 years. But then, after a single anonymous complaint in 2016, his plate was revoked. During the Supreme Court hearing last January, an expert witness testified that the license plate may be interpreted as support for violence against women, as it can be read as grab her, and ultimately some may feel threatened by the plate. In the end, the Supreme Court agreed there's no constitutionally protected right to freedom of expression on a government-owned personalized license plate. Okay, um, I get that. I don't. I things change. As long as they gave them all the money back and there was no fees or anything, and they like got the money back for the vanity plate and all that stuff, I suppose when one slips through the cracks, that could be part of the agreement, right? By the way, we can revoke this plate at any time with a full refund. Florida officials released a list of personalized license plate requests that they rejected in 2021, including T. Bundy and Fart, with a few A's. 
Um, Why did they approve that fart? Like, really? Oh, they rejected those ones. Oh, rejected. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, The uh, department said more than 500 plate requests were rejected in 2021 alone for containing obscenities, including profanity and letter and number combinations deemed to be offensive or making reference to offensive topics. So what would we do here on the shift? Well, if they're offensive, we will read them to you. You ready? Yeah. Some of them include uh, T. Bundy and Fert. 2020 WTF. Well, maybe the WTF, I guess, could be considered offensive. But that's a logical statement, I think. 2020, exactly. WTF. Look what you did to us. Yep. Uh, Forever 69. That person was obviously like 12 when they thought of that one. Drug man. Probably a pharmacist. Yeah. But but still a bad idea in general, I would say. Great reason to get your car inspected when you cross the border. Um, I fart. That's a true statement. I (laughs) I suppose. Uh, Meth. M-E-T-H, except it was M-3-T-H. There's no... Meth. It's not subtle. No. Nuts with four U's and U-U-U-U-U-T-S. Oh, you could just be, like, disappointed. Like, nuts. I can't believe that happened to me. Yeah, yeah, right? Like crimmins. Can't believe that happened. Yeah. Um, (laughs) V-Nasty. It's funny. I think that's pretty funny. Like, what if your name was Veronica Nasty? I don't know. I think if your name was Veronica Nasty, they should give you the plate. White Trash, where the trash, the S in trash is a five. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Y-A-S-S-Q-W-N. Why is that offensive, though? Uh, I think that one, um, I assumed it was Yas Queen. Oh, I thought it was just like when people say Yas Queen. Oh, maybe it's Yas Queen. Yeah. Maybe. And Dr. 69. Again, that's the 12-year-old. Yeah, I, I, I can see why those ones didn't get. Hey, really, do you want to put that in your car? No. I don't want to put it's any of them on my car. It's, no. not cre- it's not creative enough, man. Be creative. You can do better. Come on. Come on, Florida. You can do better. Are you okay with pizza delivery? Yes. Well, yeah. yeah. Beats going out. Beats going anywhere. I like this new thing with this uh, contact list where they like just put it on your front step and then they take a picture. Mm-hmm. And then they text you. So you don't even, you know, and then like the app does all the transaction for someone like me who doesn't want to really interact with many people. That's mm-hmm. even better. <laughs> uh oh. What? People. Yeah, exactly. Um, I did get Skip just last week because I was craving because uh, Wendy's has the portobello mushroom bacon melt, which is like my favorite of all the sandwiches of all the fast food joints. And it's only in every now and then. So I did order that. They just left it on the step. I left instructions to leave it on the front step. So that's cool. And if it's Paul's Pizza from Airdrie, oh, my goodness, amazing. So, yes, I am okay with pizza delivery. Pizza was the original on-demand food, really. It was the first one that you could get delivered no matter what time it was, where you were. You can get anything delivered these days, but there is something special about a delivered pizza. Delivery drivers are overwhelmed with more and more people choosing to stay home or just be lazy and have the food brought to you. Ryan. That's why Domino's is going to pay you to get your pizza. So now through the end of May, Domino's will be tipping customers $3 if you order online and choose to carry out and do takeaway. The credit can be used on future online carryout orders. 
So basically, they're going to give you a discount now if you go get it. Some analysts say the promotion could ease the workload on drivers just in time for the Super Bowl, which is one of the company's biggest pizza sales days. Domino said in a statement that the carryout credit comes combined with other offers, making for a tasty deal, and it would also help retain customers. It's great. It's a great promotion. Anything that gives you a credit to come back really is a great promo. Pizza customers are notoriously fickle and tend to choose the chain that offers the better deal. I stick to the better pizza. Just remember, if you do order pizza, tip your driver if they do a good job. No! This Domino's pizza guy is really upset about his last delivery. What follows next is an epic meltdown. Five minutes out there in the rain! And no tip! No tip! I wasn't having the best day. I spoke to 23-year-old Malik Ambersley of St. Petersburg, Florida. During the pandemic, you know, Things like tips and stuff like that are important for me to be able to feed, you know, my family and, and uh, you know, myself and try to keep a roof over my head. But you were not fired? Uh, no. No, I wasn't. Luckily, I have a really good support team there and everything. They talked me down. There was nobody in the store or anything like that. Wow. Um, I, there was a, I gave a guy a lecture once. Um, I was driving Skip the Dishes. I was all the way downtown, and it was in the middle of traffic. I had to go all the way downtown to get this food, bring it all the way back up by the University of Calgary. It took me over an hour to go get it. It was like a $10 order. It was a $3.50 delivery fee. I got there, and there was no tip. There was no tip included on it, nothing. And it was one of those back when Skip the Dishes used to force you to take them. You couldn't avoid taking them. And uh, and I got there, and I said, you know what? Middle of traffic, rush hour, this time of day, that's really dreadful for you to do that. I just made $4 for an hour's worth of work. And he said to me, I know how it is, man. I'm a skip the dishes driver. And I was like, oh, my God, you do this for a living and you know what it is and you don't tip. That was dreadful because typically hospitality workers really support hospitality workers. And I, I hate the notion of tipping. Uh, I do. Um, or the expectation of chipping, tipping. I think you tip for good service uh, always. And if the service is terrible, um, it doesn't bother me to not tip if the service is terrible. But if the food is amazing and the first service is terrible, then you should probably be having a conversation with the manager, you know? Don't make everybody pay. But still, um, that guy blew his top. This is the Shift Podcast. Well, we've seen an awful lot go on over the last few days. I mean, we've got Coots border crossing as well with protests, all kinds of border crossings for that matter, and uh, everything that has happened in Ottawa of late. So we wanted to talk about that. Here's the question that I pose to Dan Horner. Dan is with Criminology, Associate Professor at Ryerson. Uh, this is his background. This is his thing. Um, Dan, it's been a lot. It has been. Uh, you know, it's one of these moments where uh, things like demonstrations, uh, what we call crowd events, um, really moves into the forefront of the news. And uh, I mean, this is a topic that's always been fascinating to me because uh, it really gets to the heart of a lot of, uh, you know, sort of tensions at the core of, of a democratic society, one where uh, we really see, um, you know, one's our, our, our right to uh, participate in uh, demonstrations or protests like this as a really sort of fundamental hallmark of 
living in a democratic society. Uh, but also we see some tensions there as well. Uh, what does it mean when we have a group, um, you know, who's advocating for, um, you know, a sort of a minority kind of position, uh, you know, taking up a lot of space like this in the public discussion? Uh, so it's always a really fascinating moment, one that really gets to the core of sort of, um, you know, the, the, the psyche of Canadians. You know, how do mm -hmm. we feel about these things? Um, how do we feel when people uh, express themselves in this way? Uh, and it's, uh, I think, moments like this. Um, and, you know, you could, you know, uh, you know, this comes up anytime there's a big sort of demonstration or public event. Uh, moments like this, um, I find always generate really interesting conversations. Yeah, and they do. I, this is the this is the part where we often as as people and citizens get tangled up in with the principles that people stand for, agree, disagree. Oh, these people are crazy. I love these people. Finally, somebody's. I feel like I belong. Like, no, these people are. are they, they don't know what they're talking about. Like all of these different positions that come up in these situations when really sitting back and looking at it from what is happening here. Let's pay attention to what is happening. What is the response and where people are consuming it becomes very interesting to me. So you said that you said demonstrations. So that's really where I want to start, Dan, is um, protest demonstrations. Um crowd events, as you called it, are they distinctly different or is it just um, more accurate? Um, you know, more uh, they, they are. Uh, I think it's it's always been tricky. Um, all sorts of social scientists and, and scholars have tried to pinpoint, um, you know, come up with exact definitions of these terms. You know, what do we mean by a protest or a demonstration? What constitutes a riot? Um, at the end of the day, a lot of these terms are really loaded um, with, they really get sort of um, uh, snapped up by the by the media. As we're seeing with the events in Ottawa, these things can be very contentious. Uh, we see people trying to frame it in uh, very positive and very negative lights. And so they'll use terms terminology like this, uh, you know, uh, even terms, you know, that we're so used to hearing, um, you know, things like mobs and stuff like that can be very political, right? That's oftentimes mm -hmm. people will use that sort of, uh, you know, uh, you know, language about languages about mobs and about violence and stuff yeah. like that. When well, it creates a bad guy, right? Uh, yeah. When they're trying to paint a picture of when they're trying to paint something in a um, in a very contentious light um, uh, versus, you know, somebody sort of defending uh, maybe who feels sympathy towards a demonstration uh, will uh, um, will not use that language, right? They'll be, you know, they'll call what one what one person calls a mob, somebody else will call, uh, you know, a gathering of concerned citizens, right? Uh, yeah. And so it's really interesting to see the way that that language uh, gets played out historically. And uh, and when one of the things that I've looked at in my work is just looking at, um, you know, uh, you know, two different newspapers and how they talk about the same events. I'm sure someone could do this with what's going on at border crossings are going on in Ottawa, but you get, uh, you know, you can get uh, two very different uh, portrayals uh, of. Uh, of, of, of the same actions taking place, right? Yeah, and as a guy who's a fan of language, Dan, we've just met, but that's for me is everything. Yeah. So now the media, and you can speak freely about the media, even though that we are on it at sure. the moment, feel free. Um, well, this is a real conversation. So the media, though, um, will often be accused of bias here, bias there. I always say, look, all humans have bias. Yeah. Uh, the media does works incredibly hard to remove that but to your point that language does impact how it's perceived is that a media problem or a human problem as most protests are pretty scary i'm going to add one little highlight there this past summer in ottawa we were driving downtown 
And there was a march. There's another word for you for a protest. There was a march that was going on and the whole streets were full of people. We got caught up in the middle of it in the car. Mm -hmm. The march made its way down our road and we were literally in it going, I don't even know what this is about at the moment. I recognize the flags and and stuff like that. It was, uh, you know, geopolitical international stuff. Okay. And, and so we were caught up in it going, what is happening? Like, we don't know. So it can be fearful for people and that kind of kicks in and takes over. So is it a human? I mean, in your study of this, is this a human thing or is this a media problem or is it an everybody problem? Yeah. I mean, uh, so, I mean, there's a few different things going on. I want to, so I've sort of two points to make on this. The first is that, um, you know, in many ways, these type of demonstrations are meant to, they're sort of a language, you know, um, you might call a visual language to them, right? In the term, mm-hmm. terms of, you know, no matter what the causes, uh, marches are kind of organized in the same yeah. way. And solidarity, to, yeah. part of the power of it is that it's meant to look really different than the day-to-day life that we're used to, right? It's meant to tangle up, um, you know, uh, the streets and stuff in a way that we're not used to, uh, that can make us feel uncomfortable just because it's it's a sort of unconventional. And oftentimes there is, um, you know, they're, 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 you know, in subtle ways, um, you know, these, these types of demonstrations or, or crowd events are trying to be, um, you know, you could use the word intimidating. They're, they're trying to be, you know, they're, they're trying to be sort of an expression of force. Um, and sometimes, you know, that could, whether it's, you know, with music, you know, you hear drums and stuff like that, um, or you hear, uh, you, Horn know, talking chanting, in Ottawa. you know, chanting and stuff like yeah. that. Um, sometimes with very, um, sort of rowdy kind of slogans or chants, um, you know, or, or sort of uh, body kind of stuff. Um, so uh, oftentimes these things are meant to um, strike fear in maybe not everybody, uh, but at least, you know, maybe a, a group that they're targeting. So that's no mistake there. In terms of the responsibility of the media, uh, I, I mean, I tend to agree with you in, in your, your, your sort of assessment of bias. I think um, a media sources. Um, is is always going to be, you know, the, people just naturally have have uh, biases and stuff like that. Um, I think it's always the, you know, when you're reading about these things, the thing that I always recommend to students is, you know, try and get, try and read some different perspectives and stuff like that. Um, you know, step out of your comfort zone, say, what, see, try and see what people are are saying about this. That's always a, a you know, a good way to approach any of these things because there are going to be, uh, there are going to be biases. Uh, generally uh, speaking, the media, when we think of sort of the really kind of mainstream uh, media, in, in Canadian society, generally, um, the media is a little bit uncomfortable with, uh, with you know, uh, these types of demonstrations, especially when they get particularly rowdy and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, uh, you know even, even before they escalate to violence, there's sort of a discomfort, uh, I think, with people, uh, you know, sort of expressing themselves in this way. So often there can be, a, a lot of people will have noted that there can be a sort of um, you know, a, a sort of an apprehension about about crowd events in uh, in sort of the mainstream media. But I think it's always good to uh, to get some different perspectives on this. And, um, you know, um, you know, I'm sure in the future when we teach about, you know, uh, the events in Ottawa this past weekend, we'll you know, this is what we'll do. We'll try and get students to uh, to look at this from uh, from a bunch of different angles. And again, as you were saying earlier, like thinking about the language that's uh, that's used here, how um, one of the things that demonstrations always try and do is they always try and make the claim that they they're legitimate, right? Yeah. Um, the people who organize them. Um, so I, this is another thing that I find, you know, it's, it's, you know, building on what you were saying earlier about language being really interesting, um, how, how groups make their claims about the, the legitimacy uh, of, of this protest, I think is really interesting to see sort of the, the rhetorical 
exercises, the justifications and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, they're often countered by people saying, you know, this is not legitimate. Uh, you can think about the events in, uh, in, in Ottawa this week. I was thinking of, you know, how uh, a few years ago there were those, uh, all those climate marches around the world. You see the same thing going on of, of people making the, trying to make the claim that this is a legitimate sort of uh, political movement um, at the same time facing people who are uh, using languages in other ways to sort of, um, to sort of, uh, you know, suggest that they're not entirely legitimate. So it's really interesting to see how that process plays out. Yeah, it comes, it brings so many things to my mind. And I ask for your correction if I've got this wrong. But when I see a protest, here's what I see. Mm. There is a, a group of people that are trying to prove a point. Let's just assume it's to a government body because yeah. that's pretty common. Yeah. Um, and so they're trying to get the attention and prove a point to the government body. I also see an element of you're not alone. If you feel this way, look at us standing up for this. Mm -hmm. So there's an attraction. I would call it membership, if you will, uh, to bring people into your cause. We need to get some press. We need to get in front of the media so more people will come because I know there's more people out there. I swear there's more people who believe in this than we do. But then there's also the finances of it. And a good protest can fundraise for a cause in a way that marketing can't. You can't just go... Even this weekend, you can't like maybe you can Um, if you're in the 10% of unvaccinated truckers that are upset where this began. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure that's where it finished, but that's where it began. Um, It's a great way to fundraise. When we look at some of the political parties that have been behind, at least their staff have been behind this particular protest. There are some amazing fundraising opportunities like they did almost $10 million now, I believe, for this particular protest. Are all of those elements, is a protest a well-crafted, you know, membership drive, really? It is. It is in a number of ways. And that's why we see that's why we see that it's such a common strategy for groups from across the political spectrum. Right. Um, and you're, you're right to point out to a, a lot of psychologists have pointed to this before that there is. Um, something really happens when when you are uh, involved in um, um, involved in these uh, in in sort of crowd events like this that there can be a real sort of sense of euphoria uh, being involved with uh, all of a sudden you're surrounded by people who think the same way as you about something and it could be really um, empowering uh, and mm-hmm. so this is why we see groups use it um, interestingly enough like um, you know there tend to not be demonstrations for things that um, you know. Um, that, you know, the vast majority of people uh, support, right? It's usually, usually you see events like this and, and protests when um, it's a group that has um, a, a position on something that is, um, you know, where they're not coming close to having sort of 50% of the public consensus is more a minority point of view. Maybe they're really concerned about uh, the environment. Maybe they're anti, you know, anti-vaccine, maybe they're um, anti-immigration, whatever the case might be. Uh, but they're trying to, it's this great sort of way of, um, uh, of sort of uh, doing two things. One kind of, um, you know, doing it as a sort of a PR thing to maybe help build your movement. And the other uh, thing is um, to get it in the news and thereby suggest that, uh, give the impression that maybe you have more support than uh, you actually do, right? Um, you know, mm-hmm. it's really, you know, if you get 3,000 people together in a town square or, you know, along a, along a parade route, um, it really looks imposing. Um, but, uh, you know, it's still, you know, you, you still might only have sort of, uh, you know, 5, 10% of the public support for something. So it does all these things, sort of 
of can generate um, it can generate interest around a topic, maybe draws uh, it draws people in. And so that's why we see groups from all over the place politically using the same strategy of, you know, whether they're protesting. You, know, you mentioned the geopolitical stuff, whether they're, uh, you know, you see thousands. I know I've seen this in where I live, you know, thousands of uh, or at least maybe perhaps hundreds of people, um, you know, coming together and and protesting something that maybe I haven't even uh, heard of, um, right. you know, a cause I haven't even heard of. But you see, they filled up the whole square in front of City Hall and you go, oh, wow, this is a big deal. Uh, and so, you know, we see those things. On the other, but just to, to build on this, though, the, the complicated thing is that um, so it can be a really effective strategy to to fundraise, to build public support for your movement. On the other hand, it can also be um, it's also a little bit of a risky thing to, to do uh, because it can, um, uh, you know, if uh, if. You know, if it's portrayed in a certain way in the media, uh, you know, if it's if it sort of descends into into violence, it can end up having a a sort of, um, you know, a, a negative impact on public support because all of a sudden you get associated with uh, violence. Uh, you saw this, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, in the last 20 years or so, and um, especially around the turn of the millennium with these sort of anti-globalization uh, demonstrations mm -hmm. um, that, uh, you know, there were a few of these around around North America, around the globe. Um, oftentimes they sort of there was sort of a, a smaller group within the group that, uh, you know, broke windows and, and stuff like that, or, you know, smashed a police car. And you see that that, um, you know, uh, that uh, organizers got really concerned about that because all of a sudden their group was being associated with violence and disorder. Um, and that, I mean, generally the, the, the you know, the, uh, the public is pretty opposed to those things, right? Uh, mm -hmm. People don't like to see uh, windows being smashed in their community. They don't like to see uh, this. So this is why, you know, it's an incredibly powerful powerful tool of the demonstration, but uh, it can also, um, you know, it could also get out of hand uh, yeah. and end up well, being a negative. You get, so you get that. I mean, I think looting is the best example yeah. of that where it starts yeah. to backfire. So criminals tend to migrate to the chaos. Mm -hmm. um, now's my chance, if you will, uh, to do that. So we saw that in Ottawa with a few people that were wildly off topic for what at least the intention at least the understood intention mm -hmm. of this particular convoy was yeah. but you you do that and and people tend to people tend to migrate to that and criminal the the criminal aspect of this uh steps in yeah so i get the backfire part mm -hmm. i really do like this can backfire and go sideways really really quick but what i'm sort of hearing is is you know the squeaky wheel gets the grease that's for sure. And then criminals step in on it with your background in criminology. What's the appeal there for the criminals? Is it just the chaos? Is it the um, the chance to slide in and out, cause your trouble, steal your things or whatever, and, and do it under the disguise of someone else? Because that, if that's the case, that seems incredibly well-crafted in itself. <laughs> it does, yeah, that's a good point that it seems well-crafted itself. It's, uh, you know, a, a lot of people have written about this. There was a really famous, one of the first, um, you know, big works of, um, of uh, what they call social psychology um, was by this, this French um, psychologist named uh, Gustave Le Bon. He was writing in 1895, and he'd seen a lot of sort of, um, you know, political riots and stuff like that in France. And so he wrote this book, uh, about about crowds and he talked about this the sort of the um the way that sometimes being in a big mass of people gives you there's an anonymity there it's very powerful again you, all the stuff we were talking about earlier you know you could feel emboldened in a crowd you could feel sort of euphoric being uh, being part of a crowd uh, but you also there's also this sort of anonymity uh that you might um you know you might feel a uh, uh, you know you might feel like it's 
easier to get away with something like, uh, you know, smashing a window uh, that on a normal day walking down the street, you would never, you, you wouldn't do uh, for a variety of reasons, whether it's, you know, you wouldn't want to be seen, you know, you wouldn't have any desire to, to carry something like that out. Um, you wouldn't, uh, you know, you'd be afraid of being reprimanded for it or punished for it in some way. Uh, but when you're part of this movement, it can be uh, this, this, you know, this, uh, you know, this, this moment that gives you uh, the anonymity uh, to, to do something like that. Cause you feel like, well, you know, I'm seeing other people do things. Other people are, other people are smashing things and they don't seem to be uh, getting into trouble. So maybe I will do that. Uh, and it will, um, you know, and, and, and so the violence kind of escalates that way. I think there is um, an element of some people are just drawn uh, towards, um, you know, drawn towards that chaos, as you were saying, like, you know, uh, and, uh, you know, again, social psychologists and sociologists have done a lot of work on this, but um, demonst- one of the funny things about demonstration is there's often a cause. So, you know, we're demonstrating, you know, uh, the government's policy on, on this or that, uh, but there are some people who uh, might show up at that event and they're not necessarily loyal to that original cause. Uh, they might just see it as, um, they're just kind of generally angry at society and they want to smash stuff. Um, yeah. And you see this dynamic in crowds sometimes that there are an element usually, um, uh, you know, not to, uh, uh, you know, not to single anybody out, but it's usually very young men. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, oftentimes there is a, a certain element of society that just, um, you know, gets a charge or a pleasure from that sort of that that sort of action, right? Yeah. Um, you know, smashing a window, flipping over a car, um, and we even see this, and you know, we sort of link this to sort of uh, you know political protest. But um, we see this as, I mean, I you know, I, I lived in in downtown Montreal for a while, and we would you all know about the you know the riots when the, the when the Canadians win, when the Canadians lose, when the, yeah, either know, way, it goes uh, through, and, yeah. and there's just an element. We saw this in Vancouver in 2010 when the when the Canucks were eliminated. There is. Uh, you know, there's an element out there that just uh, takes pleasure in um, smashing stuff. And you'd have to look at those people one on one and say, OK, what is what is making you want to do something like that? Um, is it you know, are you angry at the world in some way? Is it just um, is it about intoxication? Uh, is it about, you know, what's the what's the mix here that is um, making you want to, um, you know, smash the windows of a, of a store? Dan Horner is uh, with criminology at Ryerson uh, experts uh, here with him and his group and conversation around protests. Now, this is uh, this is fascinating. I call it the hot dog effect. Right. Mm. Is that good protests? They always give away free hot dogs and coffee. Right. Because they, you, you get those interviews and people will step up like, oh, hey, sir, why are you here? Yeah. Oh, it's free hot dogs. Right. Like they don't even know what's going on. So there's there's an element of belonging that gets brought into it. Yeah. And you know, the I belong, the hormones kick in, it becomes this blatantly, uh, you know, mammalistic, I don't even know that's a word, uh, experience where, you know, you're, you kick in as an animal, right? I belong here. This is my pack. These are my people. Yeah. And all of these things are going on. And it seems to me to be, um, very slippery slope, but at the same time, and this is deeply philosophical of me, but you can't have normal, Unless you have a rebel. Yeah. You don't get normal unless there's a rebel to be found. And you can't be a rebel unless there's a normal. So is this protest and everything going on just a necessary experience of life? 
Uh, I think so. I think there's, there's, you know, there's always going to be, um, you know, uh, tension within a society. You look at, you know, for if, if we're looking at this, um, at the, you know, the events in Ottawa this weekend specifically, um, you know, uh, we all know that that um, that the pandemic has uh, has been stressful for people. Uh, we all know that, uh, you know, we all have people in our in our lives, friends and family, who have been um, impacted in uh, a whole range of negative ways, from very sort of mm-hmm. minor inconveniences to, you know, I sure would like to go to a bar and have a drink with my friends to really, you know, losing, you know, losing businesses and uh, losing yep. loved ones. Uh, Careers, like yep. So we all know that that uh, that uh, that this has been a very stressful time for people, and I and I think that um, you know I think there's it's natural that we're going to have some friction over these policies. Um, I don't know of one jurisdiction in the, in the world where everybody is happy with what their government is doing. Um, yeah. You know, uh, there's, there's, you know, there's, this is uh, sort of um, to, to use the, 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 the phrase that gets you that we hear on a daily basis. Now, I mean, these are very unprecedented times. And so we see some tension. And then I think what you get with the events in Ottawa is, you know, um, different groups and organizations are moving in and I, I think trying to take advantage of that and trying to use this as, a moment to build up support for um, a cause that's not new to them, right? Uh, these are often, you know, sort of lifelong activists who have been hammering away at these points for, uh, you know, sort of long before we even knew what uh, what COVID was. Uh, so, I mean, I, I think there's a little bit of that going on. But yeah, I mean, I think this is part of, um, you know, uh, again, living in a, uh, a democratic society where people are, you know, it's, as I mentioned earlier, it is sort of a, a fundamental hallmark of, of our society that you are allowed to go out onto the street and, and voice your opinions and and these you know you know tensions like this are going to on occasion kind of uh, bubble over and uh, the alternative to that is living in a, a totalitarian society where nobody ever you know you would you know you would never step out of line in this way uh, so um, you know I, I think th- this is sort of part of the uh, you know this is part and parcel of living in the society that we live in is that occasionally people are going to um, you know uh, you know uh, we're, we're going to see uh, events like this and um, they happen you know periodically uh, you know, uh, for, you know, uh, on, on an ongoing basis. Yeah. The science of a protest is really what it, this is what we're talking about here. And if we're going to talk about the protest, let's talk about the not protest mm. back to my point of, of um, rebels and normal. Yeah. Uh, by the way, don't ever tell someone who fancies themselves to be a rebel that they're just a necessary cog in the wheel of <laughs> yeah. what is normalcy. Right. Cause that does not go well, no, it doesn't. Uh, but it's true. So let's talk about that. So we have the normal, which is I can get to work today or yeah. my products can get to the store today. Mm. Then we have the interruption. Yeah. And the interruption, we've seen it with the trains. We've seen it with pipelines. We've seen it downtown Ottawa. I'm going to create interruption. I'll show you. Mm-hmm. Now, this to me is where it gets confusing because there's an element of backfire because you certainly create this negative perception of what you're doing to get the attention of the po- policy body, if you will, yeah. to do something about it. Yeah. So you have to, you know, there's some, um, you never win a war without killing off a soldier. Yeah. And that's a terrible, terrible cliche, but it's very true. And so if you are going to, if you're going to protest and interrupt, you're going to have people mad at you. That's the only way you're going to get, that's that minority majority. See how it starts to shape there yeah. in, in my language. And so you have these interruptions. And I guess the question really is, is do they work? Yeah, this is, and I, I think that they do. Um, I think they they do work if you are very careful with them. And I think this is where we get closer to sort of the science argument here. Um, 
you know, I, I think that, uh, for example, you know, we're, we're reading today that some elements of this, this, uh, this protest in Ottawa are planning on uh, extending this and sort of making this go for days on end. And you can see the temptation to do that because they're, they're doing what we were talking about earlier. They're building that sense of belonging and maybe they think they're growing their, uh, their base of support. Uh, but I think at a certain point, the um, the uh, the returns start to diminish, right? And you just end up getting, you know, you get end up getting more people angry with you uh, than you than you did at the start, right? Uh, so mm-hmm. I, I really question that um, that strategy. To me, it doesn't seem um, it doesn't seem very savvy. And, and you know, I think you really run the risk of public opinion really turning on you uh, in a way that um, you know, if this um, if this demonstration had been. Uh, you know, to, to give another example, one I used earlier, has it been like the uh, the climate march where people, you know, come together for an afternoon, uh, they make a lot of noise, they try and capture public's attention, and then things kind of go back to normal. Um, I, to me, that seems like uh, my guess, uh, and it's, you know, a relatively informed guess, uh, to me, that there would be less co- less of a risk of that, of that kind of backlash. I think as this drags on, um, people are going to, uh, you know, people are going to start getting mad at the um, at, at the, the the consequences this is having on their daily lives, and and this is a public uh, that is already stressed after you know after you know coming yeah. up on two years of COVID restrictions. You think of people uh, living in Ottawa uh, who are now you know being told uh, you know to be you know to try not to leave home and to try not to you know go into the city or uh, if they live in the city to you know move around their neighborhoods. Um, you know this is you can see how public opinion could could turn really decisively uh, in yeah. a relatively quick way. It's almost like that person who was like, yeah, look, you had me in the beginning, but yeah. five days later, like I'm out, this is yeah. too far. Yeah. And so in your research around the criminology and the protests and all the things that go on here, uh, there's a bunch of names for this. The sunk effect is how I'm familiar with it. That's how I call it. But you've got like retrospective cost is another one. Sunk cost effect. Um, you've got the, um, the, 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 spending fallacies, right? Cost fallacies. You've got loss aversion. You've got all of these things here that um, probability bias is another one that kicks in. You have all of these things of, well, we've come this far. We might as well not quit. And that is a very heavily researched um, psychology of you've lost focus on your original uh, goal mm-hmm. and you're basically going, well, we've given up so much, yeah. we might as well go all the way, even though you could be better off if you pulled the pin and left. Yeah. So is that, is that, do you guys do any research around those? Because that to me is that we're sticking around or we're interrupting the train or we're interrupting the traffic yeah. sort of mentality. Yeah. I mean, that's really interesting. One of the things that, that, uh, that I've read research on before um, is uh, this, uh, this idea that Oftentimes, these events look very different when you're in the middle of them than when you're looking on from afar. We have a different perspective on them. Um, so, um, you know, people who are, um, you know, people who are uh, participating, who are there now and they're engaged in these events, um, they might feel like the wind is really in their sails, right? Because they're in this kind of, it's that, it's that, you know, that fundamental kind of 21st century thing that we all experience because of social media, where you get into your little bubble uh, and things feel really good in it. Uh, but it's really important to have have that to have that mechanism of you know being able to step outside of that and go uh, well you know um, you know 
I, I'm, I'm here on the street. I'm talking to uh, my, uh, you know, my, my friends who are at the same event that I am and, and, and we're really patting each other on the back and we think it's going great. But actually, if you step outside of that, I think we're at the risk of alienating a lot of people. So that is a really sort of fundamental aspect of um, all these sort of, you know, again, sort of these crowd events that, um, uh, that uh, rely on uh, sort of an extended, uh, an extended engagement. Uh, as, as you said, there's all, all those sort of different, um, you know, those, those different sort of, uh, you know, uh, sort of theories that you were mentioning earlier. Uh, these all start to sort of, uh, you know, uh, snowball. And I think it can be really hard for, um, for people who are caught up in the middle of it to realize that that's happening. Surprised by the money. Uh, and here's the way, I mean, again, I'm going to go back to the sort of normal rebel thing. Yeah. Um, when you give money to something, mm. you don't really have to get involved. There was a lady I saw on the news and they had interviewed her on a bridge mm. and she was standing on a bridge and she was waving flags and supporting the convoy as it went by, it, which is great that she feels like that's her stand. Um, and, but it was what she said that got me and she, and I'm paraphrasing, of course, she said, basically, I've never protested before. Yeah. But now I'm here, right? I'm here to fight. And I was like, you're standing on a bridge waving a flag. Yeah. yeah. You're not fighting. Yeah. Um, so you're not fighting. You're supporting. Yeah. But you're you're waving a flag. You know, there's a big difference between the lady who's standing on a bridge who thinks she's fighting for something and even the trucker that gave up, you know, that week's work to drive there and and be there in that one who came maybe all the way from vancouver mm -hmm. like there's a big difference there and we have this perception that we're fighting for something yeah. but hey if i got an extra 10 grand lying around yeah. dan i can just donate the 10 grand yeah. now i feel like i'm fighting and i i can still go about my day and i get to cop out of it a little bit exactly. is that a yeah. factor in this oh absolutely yeah i i think that's definitely it i mean what that woman on the bridge was probably experiencing was this um this again this kind of euphoria of being in um you know all of a sudden she is in that you know she's surrounded by sort of like-minded people and um you know that can that can sort of uh you, you know generate the generate those very sort of strong um kind of emotional uh responses and so that's likely happening there um you know yeah the the money uh it's it's really interesting um, it's really interesting to, to, to think of sort of the, the money that's falling into this and um, what those motivations are. Um, I, I mean, I think there was some savviness on the part of these organizations to uh, who organized this this event um, to sort of frame this whole thing around around trucking and truckers uh, again who are very sort of um, you know uh, uh, you know very sort of sympathetic characters. Um, we mm -hmm. all um, you know well, they were the heroes, right? Pardon me. They were the heroes. Yeah, exactly. I mean, since right. the beginning of COVID, we've been talking about people doing that kind of essential work and people who are putting themselves in danger as opposed to, you know, other people who are able to work from home and, and all that stuff. Uh, and so they framed this around sympathetic characters. And I, I think that turned out to be, um, you know, uh, a, a very profitable kind of decision for them to make, because I think a lot of that money flowing is um, is flowing because um, not necessarily because people want to support the organizations that were organizing this event, but because they, they wanted to do something to reach out to, uh, as you said these people who um who you know we've been told quite frequently are are you know our heroes are, are doing this you know the work that allows us in the in the middle of a pandemic to still be able to go to the grocery store and get everything we want to get um so yeah i mean i think that was i mean i think that's likely behind um that sort of you know you know people saying well i'm not going to go to ottawa and, and and you know march and stuff like that but i'll i'll send in two hundred dollars i'll send in five hundred dollars and and mm -hmm. stuff like that right it's amazing um 
and just for the sake of being distinct in this, the truckers have been very clear that most of truckers are vaccinated (laughs) and are not involved in this. And I just think that I've personally, Dan, worked on the show to not call it um, like the trucker convoy. Uh, I just call it the protest, right? Because I think that that unfairly represents then this language thing kicking in um, there too. Uh, it's, It's kind of amazing to me to see how that sense of belonging really starts to kick in. And I guess that I would like to leave this conversation, I mean, with the protests and your experts about criminology, and I'm a little bit more hippy-dippy with it, but if people only could realize how powerful they are in their day every day, Mm. that they have the ability to make this change constantly through healthy, productive conversation about doing research. And maybe there is a statistic out there that, that actually supports what it is that they're, that they're doing. If people could realize how powerful they are every day, um, it's a healthy human conversation. It really does change what becomes a protest. And if you look backwards in time, there have been some massive marches that have changed the world. Yeah. Um, they were clear, they were concise, and now we don't have that same clarity, I think, as people. And and that's what I would like to leave it uh, in a non-scientific way, maybe yeah. an experiential, yeah, philosophical way of yeah, how powerful really we are. Really interesting points. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, you know, protests are these sort of these great sort of democratic, uh, you know, this it's this way of having the, the people's voice, uh, you know, uh, you know, heard. And, and you're right. It has been uh, a really transformative thing in a bunch of different contexts. Right. Where people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Well, and again, language for me, it, you can't have strength show of strength unless you have weakness. Exactly. Yeah. And so in order to create the strength, that means somebody has to be weak, i.e. we're going to block traffic. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's a function, just a function of life. That's the way it is. But when you change that to powerful, there's no antithesis to powerful. And when people realize they don't need to be strong. Yeah. You're strong and weak happens. It comes and goes. It's already happened in my day today. I've already had strong moments and weak moments. Absolutely. But when we're powerful, we can live into the core of our integrity and our character and our soul and create things differently. And that's the part when someone does a protest like this that I fear gets lost. Yeah. Is that soulful part of I give a crap. Yeah. And um, that's kind of a beautiful thing when you think of it that way. It really is. It really is. And seeing sort of the, I mean, I think there's been some great moments during COVID with of, you know, us doing a better job of understanding people's vulnerabilities and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, when when you sort of see that more kind of violent kind of, um, you know, um, strength-based kind of arguments uh, coming in, um, it kind of defeats some of that of, because I think there have been some moments that have been transformative in COVID where people have said like, oh, my you know, my neighbor is in a vulnerable moment right now. Right. Or, or, you know, and, uh, and, and that's where we, I think that's where you actually see kind of, um, you know, a more productive change kind of taking place. Yeah. I mean, if Canadians instead just said, please help, yeah. I've had enough. We yeah. need to do this differently. Yeah. Then that's a whole different conversation. Wow. Uh, so insightful. Dan, I had no idea that there was this much science behind a protest. Well, I thought originally it was just a bunch of pissy people being pissy. But <laughs> there can be a well-crafted way to do this. Um, but boy, it takes it takes a lot to step away and go, is my cause working? Yeah. 
uh, must be exciting for you to teach this and be around this with students and really open their eyes to all of the different three-dimensional looks at this. Exactly. It really, it really is a fascinating topic. And it's, it's so interesting to hear, you know, students, especially, uh, you know, at, at universities in, in Canada today, whether it's in Toronto or, or Calgary, you get, you know, you get students who, um, you know, uh, oftentimes have, have lived in other, in other countries. Uh, you know, I've had students who lived through elements of, of, you know, like the Arab spring and stuff like that. Uh, Mm-hmm. And it's just fascinating to hear their their experiences of of these types of events. Uh, yeah. it can it really marks somebody's life, you know, to be to be mm-hmm. a part of something like that. Yeah, we didn't even get into the international yeah. stuff. No, 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 I mean we can sure. keep going. This is crazy. Dan, thank you so much for your time, man. Appreciate it. Oh, it was a great conversation. Thanks so much for having me. This is the Shift Podcast. We gotta get ourselves into some <laughs> Uh, I was sorry I had this flashback to a week ago where Andy shared his childhood love and dreams over disco and how um, yeah oh god that was beautiful you started it you're the one that coined me disco Andy so I had to tell you the disco story that was that like that was deeply rooted in my soul that name that came for you so I mean it was meant to be man like I didn't know your grandma and your grandpa and and the fact that you know when you would go and watch these these movies and the, this movie had this one disco song that you loved which is awesome it was, it's such a good song though you got to admit like that all right that is well, we brought it up so we've got a, song so now there isn't there was a remake of the movie what's the song called Andy what's his name the song is called I am a disco dancer. From the hit Hindi song or movie Disco Dancer from 1982. Uh, VJ Benedict, right? That was the artist. Oh, there's um, original. There's an original Disco Dancer by Bappy Lahiri. Oh, that's the album. Yeah, the Um, original is. This is it. Oh, it just makes me smile. So. This all just because open Mickey... up every segment with like this now, man. This should well, be Mike like... Yanni told me stories about you in Vegas. That's how this all started. Oh, I know, I know. <laughs> you know, oh, it started so when I was four years old when I heard this song. That's where the legend started. Yeah, this yes. is so beautiful. I love it. Anyway, uh, if you missed that last week here on the program, there is a I Am a Disco Dancer Dancer 2.0. And thank you to all the shift heads who did reach out with the, the movie, the trailers, the links, the everything at shiftheads.ca, our Facebook group, to share all of it. Oh, that was fantastic. How you doing, Andy? You doing good? I'm good. I'm good. Every time I hear that song, I'm doing better. So I'm really good right now. You know what I meant to ask you? Um, now, is this the grandpa that... Or was it your grandpa or your great grandpa? When your family moved to Canada and the Barrar story about how is that the same grandpa? Yes, that's okay. gra- grandfather on my father's side. Yeah. Yeah. And so Andy's, uh, can you tell that story very, very quickly just so you can understand? Because your name Barrar, I've seen it spelled other ways and it's for you, it's spelled Barrier. Yes, that's right. So my great grandfather came to Canada uh, circa 1905, 1906. No one really knows the exact date. But um, one of the earliest Indo-Canadian settlers uh, on the West Coast. And back then they called everybody just went by the last their their name was last name was Singh. And so at some point in time, just because you had everybody coming here and using Singh as their last name, they started to use like, you know, their actual last names. And somehow my name got spelled wrong. So it got spelled B-A-R-Y-E-R 
when it probably should have been spelled B-R-A-R or the other variety is B-E-R-Y-A-R. So, mm. um, and the funny thing is no one in my family can spell really good. So I think it's just like, <laughs> it was fitting, just like my name, Disco Andy, that you gave me. Like it was, it's all it's purposeful. Um, so I have more questions, if that's okay. We talk about family stuff for a sec. Oh, um, absolutely. Okay, I know that you love your family. They're so important to you. In fact, your folks are like literally next door. Um, the um, so with with the Barar, the Singh, the name Singh was a high status name in India at the time. Isn't that why when many people emigrated to uh, Canada, they they changed their name? Isn't that wasn't that the truth, or is that where I'm misreading that? Well, I'm not a historian, Shane, but I I do know that historically they went. They just that was the name. It was like your your first name and then Singh. Um, and then there was just too many things here. So they had to yeah. use their, their traditional last names. Um, but the earliest settlers, they never used their real last names when they came. Um, mm. And then at some point, I would love to see if I could find documentation, like yeah, in like the government, if there's stuff, some right? type of something in there that we could like make a great documentary later in my life, you know, to find it the origins be. of my last name. Yeah, that's neat. I like that. Now, what did you call? Um, because you know, obviously, you know, the, your guys were watching Hindi movies. So, what what did you call Grandma and Grandpa? Because I know so many cultures have so many different names. Oh well, my because so it's interesting because my grandfather was actually born in Canada in in like huh. the thirties or forties. My dad was born in Canada, so I had two different sides. Like the interesting thing is, all the males in my family got an arranged marriage uh, to someone you know outside of Canada. So. My mom and dad are, this is a funny story. They are the two most opposite people. My dad was, you know, this hippie growing up in the 70s with a big afro, always getting in trouble. And so their, their solution was, you know what? He's out of control. He's 17. Let's just get him married. That'll solve everything. And so, <laughs> so they get married to my mom who comes from this like really like aristocratic, well-educated family. of uh, They're all like economic professors. And so these two opposite people suddenly get an arranged marriage. And then I am the byproduct of that. And I am literally <laughs> half my mom and half my dad. I got this crazy party side. And then I got this like more like, serious intellectual side. So, um, hmm. yeah, it shows you arranged marriages work and you know, opposites oh. do uh I have well. uh, I have two friends, two friends that are from arranged marriage. One of them is it's not been easy, but they've made it work. They're like peas and carrots, those two. And then another one um, where they you know broke it off and and ended it because it was dreadful. So um, it's no different. The success rate's probably higher, I would say, than what is you know sort of the Western notion of marriage statistically. Uh, yeah, I think statistically it is higher between love marriages, um, and I think it's just because they go in kind of knowing you know, what they're signing up for. And then you just got to kind of make it work. But like you say, it doesn't always work out. Um, but, yeah. um, you know, it happens in every culture. Anyway, so back to my original question. What would you call grandpa, like in Hindi culture? or in, Well, like, everybody, is that right? well, it depends. See, in, in our culture, we actually have different names for like your your uncle, if it's your on your mom's side or your dad's side. We even oh, really? have a different word if for your uncle, which is your mom's like older brother or younger brother. So really? when you say it, you know exactly who you're talking to. So we'll have like mama, which is like your uncle's, your, on your mom's brother. But then you might have chacha, which is your dad's younger brother. So wow. we, it's it's fascinating, but it makes a lot of sense. And I, I I really truly appreciate that we have that that different types of naming conventions. So when you're talking about your relative, people automatically know what side of the family and the hierarchy. Yeah. If it's your older, you know, cousin yeah. or your uncle or, or younger one. 
Yeah, there's a few cultures, Filipinos, with uh, middle names, right? Mom's maiden name becomes a middle name. I mean, they, it's so much easier to follow. It's quite genius, actually, um, the way that you know some of these long lineage cultures have been able to track family trees, which is cool, just by names. Anyway, uh, thank you for the insight. I love it. Um, Andy Barrar here on The Shift. It's handyandymedia.com. Now that I've gobbled up all this time talking about family stuff, which is fascinating, so thank you for giving that to me. Um, we're going to get started here with a shift head who was sliding into your DMs with some art ideas for you. What happened? Yeah, so this is a really cool story. So uh, a, a fellow shift head named James, he's from Edmonton. He's a bar manager, listens to the show all the time, slides into my DM on Instagram, and he's like, hey, can I draw your logo? And so I'm like, okay, sure. Like, how are you going to draw it? And so he finds my logo off my website. And for the listeners that don't know, when it came to me making a logo, I'm trying to figure out, okay, handy Andy, what's my logo going to be? It's going to be like a hammer. Will it be like a computer, a smartphone, or a saw? And I couldn't Mm -hmm. figure it out, Shane, so I just used my face. So Mm -hmm. I went to a designer. I said, make my face into a logo. So James from Edmonton took my logo, which is my face, and he put it into this, he's got this, what's called a kinetic coffee table. And basically it looks like a, an art coffee table, has a glass top, underneath it is sand. And in the sand, you have this metal ball. And under the table is a motor mm-hmm. that moves that mag- metal ball with a magnet. And so he was able to draw my face in this table. And so he made a video of it and then he sent it to me, and I, my mind just blew. I was like, what is this thing? And so I did the research. It, you can actually, all the listeners, if you want to see it, just go to the Shift Facebook group. You can find it at shiftheads.ca, and you can see it. It is absolutely amazing. This is like a high-tech, kinetic art coffee table. And if you want something that no one else has, you definitely have to check this out. Interesting. So go to uh, handyandymedia.com. Make sure you like Andy's page. Uh, he's got a group there on Facebook too, or shiftheads.ca if you want to check it out. And it'll be posted there for you as well. Um, actually, I'm going to, I'm going to flag that up to the top of the group just so everyone can see it and they don't have to go looking for it. So it'll be nice at the top so you can link up with Andy's stuff. Okay. Uh, next with Handy Andy in the DIY. Um, um, Let's talk quickly about the Amazon stuff, because this is fascinating, and I've learned some secrets on how you can get your Amazon returns for free. So where are we going? Yeah, so a lot of people don't really know what happens to Amazon returns. And I kind of looked into it, and I was just amazed. They said that online purchases are three times more likely to be returned than items that you buy in the store. And in 2021, last year, there was $761 billion dollars of merchandise that was returned and they estimate about you know a third of that is just you know ends up being thrown away or or turned into trash so amazon has gotten a lot of pressure to do something about that and so they're trying to rework it and and give these sellers so when it gets returned the sellers have a couple of options it can be sent back to them it can be destroyed it can be uh sent to like a liquidation so what usually happens is the sellers, it's so expensive for them to take that, that, that merchandise back to their factory or their you know, fulfillment center that they end up just burning it or destroying it. And a lot of this stuff is really good. So for people out there, you can go to these liquidation sites and you can get a pallet of Amazon returns. And it's like digital dumpster diving because you never know what you're going to find in there. Uh, you might find some treasures and you could go and sell them online, but... Um, it just seems that this online, 
you know, habits that we have of, of shopping online. Like we just really don't think about what's happening with the merchandise. And people, now that they're buying clothes online, there's a phenomenon called wardrobing where people will buy a small, medium and a large and then return the other two. But no one ever thinks about what happens to that when it gets returned, Shane. And sadly, a lot of that gets destroyed. So people should think twice about doing that, especially when they're buying clothing online. I've done that with shoes, but I have taken them into the shoe store where you know they don't get destroyed. Um, those pallets are great. You can buy them, and there's tons of stuff in them. You might get some real gems in there that you could sell just privately or as a business or whatever, which is kind of cool. Um, but yeah, there's an awful lot of that stuff gets ruined. In fact, we've heard of, um, some of the high end purse companies destroying purses yep. before they throw them in the garbage so they can't be reclaimed or found by anybody. It's very, very wasteful. When we're going to have a conversation in this world about, um, you know, recycling and being green and, you know, electric cars and blah, blah, blah. We change this world when we change the way we consume products first more than gasoline. I stand by that hands down uh, because the amount of waste that goes into producing that stuff is staggering. HandyAndyMedia.com, Andy Barrar. Now you shared this um, this table that one of the shift heads had reached out and, um, and put your logo on this table. You know what it is? Uh, it's amazing, by the way, uh, controlled yeah. like apps and lights and all kinds of cool stuff. It's like an Etch-A-Sketch that's automatic <laughs> and does it all for you. You know what? That's exactly what I told him. I'm like, this is Etch-A-Sketch 2.0. Like, and Love he's it. like, exactly. Um, it is so cool because of the lights and the fact that it still functions as a regular coffee table and the and you can program any kind of image that you want into the table. So you can imagine having your cup of coffee and you're just watching this little you know, oh, ball be, go through the sand and, and draw something. It's it's mesmerizing, quite quite frankly. Well, and it, and it creates just some pre-flower shapes and doesn't always, you don't have to, if you get the table, put Andy's face in it, just saying. How handsome as it is, hey, it's not, not the only thing. Not many people can say that they've gotten their face in a coffee table, you know, that's that's a <laughs> first, true. Shane. <laughs> it is, it's definitely a first. Uh, Handy Andy Barrar here on The Shift. Thank you very much for listening, 877-399-9898. How about going for a little flight electrically? That's kind of cool. Yeah, so last week we were talking about how they're making this car that could actually fly where you would drive and then the wings come out and then it suddenly flies. Well, it looks like the first all-electric passenger aircraft is preparing to take flight. It's called the Alice. It's developed by an Israeli company. And, and it's using the same technology of an electric car or in your cell phone. It takes about 30 minutes for charging and it's a nine-passenger airplane that can fly for one hour and about 440 nautical miles. And it has a max cruise speed of 287 miles per hour. So this is just like a prototype. They've been working on this since 2019, but it is starting to get through the approval stages. And what they're trying to do, Shane, is they're going to make three kinds of, of these um, you know, electric airplanes. They'll make a commuter variant, an executive one, and then one specialized for cargo. And it's the cargo one that I think is really going to take off because, pun intended. Oh, there it is. <laughs> <laughs> I caught myself on that one. So this one's going to take off because, um, you know, DHL, the, the shipping companies actually already ordered 12 of these because they want to reduce their cost of, of moving goods around the world. And, you know, it's safer to use goods on an all electric airplane than, than people at this stage. Mm -hmm. So I think in about, I'd say 10 years, this could be a reality. Now it's not going to, this is really meant for short trips. Um, not, yeah. not going over, you know, the ocean right now, 
But the fact that they can create that we have the technology, it's really the battery technology itself is what's holding everything back because weight's kind of an issue when you have an airplane. And that's so the, the wind, problem. headwinds. Yes, absolutely. And so, but it, it just shows that this could be the future. That said, Shane, we just got to merge those two stories we talked about. We need the all electric flying car. That is mm-hmm. where we got to get to. So maybe uh, 20 years, we'll, we'll see something like that. Well, the cool part about using it for an airplane versus a car is we never sometimes, we don't know how far we're going to drive in a day. But an airplane, they know where they're going to go. They can schedule that to go to places. And if it's light packages, small packages, doesn't take a ton of weight, they have a lot of very big airplanes doing very small trips. And so I can see the benefit of this stuff for cargo and short flights. Um, it's not going to go Calgary to Vancouver, but you might get Winnipeg to Regina, right? You might get Edmonton to Calgary. And those little short hops, that could be... That could save a lot. I mean, takeoff is, regardless of what you're lifting, takeoff of lifting the plane is very, very heavy on the fuel. And so this would be interesting. I think this is even better than taxis because taxis, you know, constantly recharging everything else. This is scheduled. It's planned out. You know where it's going. So this is pretty accurate. The only thing I think you're missing, though, here is uh, a handy Andy Barrar face on a table inside the executive version of this. Now airplane. we're talking. Now we're, that's luxury <laughs> right all there, together. right? Yes, and then a- you can put in some great Bluetooth speakers that you reviewed, right? That can play some um, little bit of disco music while they're flying. Like this could be a thing. This could be like Andy Air. Put a little right? disco light or, or a strobe in there, you know, mm-hmm. and have a little Studio Fifty Four in the sky, Shane. Now we're oh, talking <laughs> on an all electric plane. HandyAndyMedia.com. Go check it out. Um, go to shiftheads.ca and click over to his website so you can see that video. It's cool. It's like an Etch-a-Sketch automatic with incredible detail on a table that you can watch unfold. It's very relaxing. For anything else, it would be um, pretty mesmerizing to get. Andy, thanks for being here. And thanks for sharing the stuff about your family. I think that's that's pretty neat. Oh, anytime, Shane. I, 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 that's the one thing I'm an expert in is, is myself and my family. So we can talk about that's that beautiful. anytime. Thanks for listening to the Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca. 